A reading from 1 Corinthians. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death for he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. The word of the Lord. I get asked all the time, who's my wife? That was my wife. Uh, she likes to fly under the radar, so if you really wanna make her day, go say hi, it's nice to meet you, and uh, embarrass her, she's, she's gonna be mad at me, but that's okay. Ah, <laughs> uh, let's pray. Father, we just invite your spirit into our midst. Um, pray that he would speak this morning as we talk about this issue of resurrection. May we understand it with some depth and insight that uh, transforms our lives. Pray that that would happen this morning through the power of your word and your spirit. We pray in Christ's name, amen. I want you to imagine that tomorrow morning you wake up and the headline you see is this, Daily News, Jerusalem Times, the tomb of Jesus is found and it's not empty. You read the article and you discover that archaeologists have found what they believe to be the tomb of Jesus and inside of it is uh, a bunch of old bones, someone who was crucified on a cross. And that's not going to happen. But if it did, what impact would it have on our faith? What difference would it make? Does the resurrection really matter all that much? I mean, when you think about it, um, 
we know that Jesus' death matters. I mean, it, that's what gives us forgiveness, right? That's him paying for our sins. But for a lot of people, it seems like the resurrection is just kind of frosting on the cake. It's nice, but not really all that necessary. In fact, for a lot of people, it kind of gets in the way. I mean, we're pretty scientific and rational, and we know, well, that dead people don't come back to life. That just does not happen. And so a lot of people who claim Christianity as their faith will say, look, believing in the literal resurrection, physical resurrection of Jesus isn't really necessary. I mean, it's nice. It's a good sentimental thought. It's inspiring, you know, the whole idea of new life and new beginnings and fresh starts and, you know, it warms the heart. But not all that important. Is that true? Well, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 is going to wrestle with the implications of taking the resurrection out of our faith. We have been working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians. Last week, Larry looked at verses 1 through 11 of chapter 15, which kind of presented the essence of the gospel. This week, we're going to talk about part of what's key to that as resurrection. Next week, he's going to deal with chapter 16, and that will kind of wrap up our time in 1 Corinthians. And then the week after that, we'll be starting a new series on the whole issue of worship. But this morning, it's resurrection. Verse 12 says this, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, evidently, there are some people in Corinth, in the church there, who are not simply arguing against Christ's resurrection, but, but arguing against resurrection in general, that nobody is resurrected. That's an absurd notion, and probably arguing it for two reasons. One, they are as rational as we are today. They know that is kind of an absurd notion to think that that which is dead can come back to life. So that makes no sense to them. But they're also probably picking up on a little bit of Greek philosophy. And Greek philosophy was basically a dualism. It said there's a good side to life and a bad side to life, good and evil. And good is spiritual and evil is physical. So if that's the case, why would you want a, a, a savior that comes back and is resurrected in a physical way? That would be absurd. He's just infusing himself with evil because it's physical. So we might want a spiritual resurrection, but not a, a physical, literal, real re resurrection. That makes no sense. So Paul says, look, let's assume for a moment that you're right that there is no resurrection. What difference will that make? Well, the first question we have to be clear on is what is resurrection? A lot of times, I think people think resurrection simply means a resuscitation. It's like the body lost consciousness, was dead, and, and then uh, regained consciousness. And that's not what resurrection is at all. That's resuscitation. Resurrection really speaks to the issue of transformation. That something fundamentally different comes back from the grave. Jesus is the model of that. And if you want to understand the nature of his resurrection, you just look at the resurrection accounts. And it, it, they're actually kind of strange. I mean, because Jesus kind of bridges this gap between the supernatural world and the natural world. 
He, he can appear and disappear. He can go through doors. He, he has a supernatural quality about him, but at the same time, he's physical. He can eat and you can touch him and uh, lay your hands on him. It's as if he's the bridge between heaven and earth, between God's space and this space, between this world and the world to come. It's like Jesus in his resurrection enters into this new dimension where the spiritual and the physical are, are melded together in this whole new way, this whole new dimension. And that's resurrection, a physical reality and yet a spiritual reality combined. Now Paul says, let's assume that that's not possible. Okay, what happens? And he basically gives us five things. The first thing he says, look, there's no resurrection. If that's not true, then Christ himself has not been raised. Verse 13, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And that's going to be his premise. If Christ has not been raised, there's huge consequences for that because Christ is kind of the foundation of resurrection. Have you ever played that game Jenga? You know, it's kind of blocks for adults. You build a tower of blocks and then you try to pull the blocks out without the tower falling. Jenga. Paul is saying, look, Jesus' resurrection is a block that if you take it out, everything crumbles. Everything falls apart. It's not, a, not a, simply a nice option. It's not frosting on the cake. It's the essence of the cake itself. If Christ is not raised then our faith crumbles. In fact, the first thing he says, the gospel itself becomes a sham. Look at verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. The word here for useless is the Greek word kanon, and it literally means empty, without substance. Uh, when I was growing up, my grandmother on Easter would always give us these chocolate bunnies. And I used to get really excited because I assumed that, that the bunny would be solid chocolate. And then I was always incredibly disappointed because it was always hollow. I don't know whether my grandma was cheap or, or what the deal was, but she never bought us solid chocolate bunnies. They looked good. They looked awesome. But inside they were always empty. And Paul's saying, look, if there's no resurrection, then your faith, the gospel, what we've been teaching is empty. There's no substance to it. In fact, he goes on. We could go back to the verse for a second. He goes on, he says, more than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But if he did not, in fact, the dead are not raised. If the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. <laughs> He's saying, look, not only is the gospel empty, but it means we're liars. Because we're going around and we're telling people that this Jesus can come into your life and change it and transform you. Because he's alive and he can make this radical difference. But that's not true if he wasn't raised. We're liars. Now that raises a really important question. What is it about the resurrection that so, is so essential to the gospel? 
And I, I think initially, as I thought about it, there are two things. One is the resurrection uh, guarantees Christ's victory over sin and death. Maybe the best way to think about this is as if uh, Christ is our champion. It's like we're in a struggle against death, sin, evil, and darkness, us against them. But Jesus comes along and says, look, I'll, I'll be your representative. I'll fight the battle for you. I will be your champion. I will go against them. And the other side decides that death is going to be their champion. So they enter into combat and death strikes its greatest blow, gives Christ all its wrath. And at that moment, we think that death has won, that he's the champion. And if Jesus say, stays dead, then death is the champion. And evil and sin and darkness win. Because our champion was killed. It's only that he comes back to life that shows he was victorious. It shows that he took death's best shot and extinguished it. It shows that as our representative, he won the struggle. He was victorious. We win in him. Resurrection guarantees his victory. But not only that, resurrection is essential to eternal life. We tell people that when you invite Jesus into your life, what you get is eternal life. And what we mean by that is a relationship with a living God, right? John chapter 17, 3 says, this is eternal life that may, you may know God and his son, Jesus Christ. The word there for know isn't a word that simply means intellectual knowledge. It means experiential knowledge. What we're telling people is, look, when you commit and give your allegiance to Jesus, you enter into, how do we say it, a personal relationship, an experiential relationship, a real relationship that is transformative, that changes you. Because now you experience the reality of God's power in your life. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, if his grave was full, if he was just, he becomes just like any other religious figure with no ability to actually change us and no ability for us to actually encounter him. Uh, a number of years ago, I was listening to uh, one of those classes that you can get through the teaching company. They, they go around and get the best college university classes, put them on CD, and you can listen to them. And I got a hold of one called Early Christianity, Experiencing the Power of the Divine by a man named Luke Timothy Johnson. Luke Timothy Johnson was a Benedictine monk uh, for 20 years, then entered into the teaching field. He's written like 20 books on the New Testament. And he's what you would consider a little more from the liberal perspective of things. He would be one of those people you would expect to say, yeah, the resurrection, it's, it's a nice so thought. It gives you a warm feeling. But it's interesting, even though he's a, a liberal, he was studying church history and he was wrestling with the question, why is Christianity, both in history and even presently, so vibrant? Why is it the fastest growing religion in the world? Why is it men so effective in changing people and making a difference? And at the end of the course, this is his conclusion. 
And it's fascinating. Remember, this is a liberal guy who, who typically would question the resurrection. He says, simply put, Christianity is powerful and persuasive as a religion because it offers a convincing personal experience of the ultimate of divine power. The common thread was and is that people had an encounter with a resurrected living Jesus Christ that changed their lives. That's the thread that, that, that is so critical to the vibrancy of our faith that we can have a relationship, a real experiential relationship with the divine because Jesus is raised from the dead. So Paul says, you take resurrection away, Jesus isn't raised, the gospel is a sham, and guess what? There is no forgiveness, right? Verse 17, he says, not only is your faith futile, but you are still in your sins. Uh, the word futile that comes right before this is a word that means powerless, ineffective. It's a word that describes a BB gun going up against an M1 tank, okay? Not very effective. Your faith is futile. It's like if there is no resurrection, then what Jesus did on the cross didn't have the impact or accomplish what we thought it should. There's, it's like there was no stamp of paid in full on the bill of our sin if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. When Max was little, Max is my son, I was taking him to a movie and uh, I got up to pay for the movie and Max said, Dad, I want to pay. And I said, okay. <laughs> he reaches in his pocket and he, he grabs a quarter, all the money he had <laughs> in the world, and he gives me his quarter. And, and you know, I'm thinking, well, I appreciate the contribution, <laughs> but it really doesn't solve the problem. It's not going to get us into the movie. <laughs> if there's no resurrection, then what Jesus did on the cross didn't really solve the problem. And if it didn't solve the problem, then we're still in our sins. In other words, there really is no forgiveness. And if there's no forgiveness, and that's a huge deal. Now, we don't talk about it much, but every one of us wrestles at times with guilt and forgiveness because all of us are broken people. We do things that we ought not to have done. We sin, we hurt other people. You know, we're a mess. And the only hope we have in the midst of that mess is that there, there is some way to truly get forgiveness. Because if there's no way to get forgiveness, you, you can excuse it or you can rationalize it or you can redefine sin so you're not guilty of it. But, but deep down, you're still left in your sin. And you rack yourself with guilt. You know, Carl Menninger a famous psychologist says that if he could convince people in mental hospitals that they were forgiven of all their sins, 75% of them could go home the next day. We all wrestle with guilt and it haunts us. Do you remember that story by Edgar Allan Poe, The Telltale Heart? The man in that story kills 
another man, and he hides the body of the man under the floorboards of where he lives. And then he starts hearing this heart. That man's heart is still beating. And he can't believe it. And he gets really nervous. And it's just always there. People come to visit. And he's scared to death that they're going to hear the heart beating. They act like they hear nothing. And it's just driving him crazy. Finally, he confesses. They dig up the body. And the man's dead. And his heart's not beating. It's a story about guilt. See, our sin haunts us. And guilt beats and we hear it ringing in our ears and we can never get away from it. And we can present this great facade to the outside world that kind of says we are better than we are, but the reality is inside we know the truth. We know how broken and messed up we are and it, it, it's, it's like the heart beating that we can't get rid of. And the only hope for that is forgiveness. And forgiveness comes only if Jesus was resurrected. And then Paul goes on. He says, not only is there no forgiveness, but the dead are lost. He says in verse 18, then those who have fallen asleep and falling asleep is a euphemism for those who are died. He said, look, if there's no resurrection, then all those who died, they're lost. They're gone. There are no more. There's nothing else. Death is the great equalizer. And it happens to all of us. And even though we, we, we try to hide ourselves from its tentacles, we can't. It invades our life. And it's, it's devastating. And if you have no hope of something more than this life, it leaves you in despair. I took a class uh, Dale Carnegie class. You know, he wrote that book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. They do a class where basically it focuses on public speaking. And I thought it would be fun to go and try to uh, learn more and hone my skills in terms of speaking. We showed up one night and the assignment for that night, most of this was extemporaneous speaking. The assignment for that night was to tell about an emotional experience that you had had. It was interesting that everybody... Well, nobody picked uh, an experience of joy. Everybody picked an experience uh, of hurt or sorrow or, or, or death. It was interesting how many people talked about losing somebody they loved. One guy got up and told about his brother and uh, the motorcycle collision that took his life. One father got up and... and told the story of his son that he had lost to cancer. Mom talked about her daughter who had uh, died of leukemia. And then the younger mom got up and told about how her baby had died from SIDS. It was just incredibly emotional night. I mean, the place was just filled with tears. And, and you know, people were sympathetic because they could relate. But what was really sad is there was no hope in that room. Because none of those people could get up and say, yeah, but, and this is what Paul says at the end of chapter 15, death was swallowed up in victory. Nobody could say that. They just had this 
vague, desperate hope that maybe, maybe there's something more. But if there's no resurrection, that's all you're left with. Because the reality is we all die. And that's a sobering thought. I like how one pastor put it. He said this. He said, someday they will have a little service for you and sing a couple of songs and say a few nice words and then take your body out and throw it in a hole and throw some dirt in your face and then come back to the church and eat potato salad. (laughs) Not a real encouraging thought. Is that all there is? We all die. And Paul is saying, look, without the resurrection, there's no hope. And then he concludes. He says, okay, if there's no forgiveness, there's no hope, then we are to be pitied. Verse 19, if only for this life we have hope in Christ. That's an interesting phrase. He's saying, you know, if we can only look at Jesus as an example, as this resurrection, as a metaphor, as this nice sentimental thought, as this thing that is really gives us, you know, warm feelings. He says, look, let's get honest. If that's all it is, then we should be most pitied. Uh, Paul was never a man to hedge his bet. In other words, he, he gave his all to his faith and his commitment to Christ. His whole life was about furthering the cause. Everything else was extraneous. He made sacrifices. He was obedient. He was committed. He'd do whatever it took to further the gospel. But if there's no resurrection, then the gospel's a sham. And he's made a bad bet, a foolish bet. Pity him because he has given up this life for nothing. Because you see, Paul in his mind was giving up all of this life for the life to come. But if there's no life to come, foolish man, we're to be most pitied. But Paul doesn't leave it there. He says, you know what? That's not the case. Jesus did rise from the dead. Look at what he says in verse 20. He says, but Christ indeed has been raised from the dead. And that's a big but. He says, to say he's not is a lie. In fact, he's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Not only was Jesus raised, but resurrection is going to be true for all of us. We will all be raised. But it's his resurrection that is the most important. I like what C.S. Lewis writes, he says that the millions of graves, even billions of graves on this earth, one is empty. And that makes all the difference. Well, what's the difference that it makes? Christ is raised, so, well, three things. And, and we'll see him in this next text, beginning with verse 21. He says, for since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come. And when he hands over the kingdom to 
God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion and authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. Do you know what, do you know what Paul is doing here? He's stepping back and he says, look, you know what the resurrection tells us? The resurrection tells us that we are part of something bigger than ourselves. That there is a story being told here. Paul hinted at it when he was explaining the gospel. You remember there he says in verse 3, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And then in verse 4, but he was raised again according to the scriptures. And when he says according to the scriptures, he's, he's saying, look, Christ's death and resurrection, uh, that is part of something bigger. It's like in those early verses, he's got this telephoto lens and he's zoomed in on the death and the resurrection. But now he is zooming out. And he's saying there's a bigger, bigger reality happening here, a larger story being told. What happens to us sometimes, we make our faith very small. We focus in on Christ's death and resurrection and ourselves. And we see it almost in this way. I got Jesus and now I get to escape and go to heaven. And that's the whole point of the gospel. That's not the whole point of the gospel. You get Jesus. And you don't get to escape to heaven. You get to escape to resurrection. And resurrection is not about the life to come. It's about the life to come. It's about life. The life. It's about life after death. After. I'm saying that wrong. It's about. <laughs> The resurrection is about life after life after death. And we forget that. We think that, you know, we die and we simply go to heaven off on the cloud somewhere and play harps and worship God. And that's what we have to look forward to. And Christ is saying, no, it's, it's not like that at all. There's this grand story about the reestablishment of my kingdom. There's been this rebellion that you see in Adam, but now I come back to rescue and reestablish my kingdom. And now I will rule. And the day will come when this resurrection takes place that brings about the kingdom in its fullness. There's a story being told. And we need to zoom back and understand our faith in the context of that story. Because it's playing our part in that story that fills our life with meaning. I believe in our culture that most people struggle to find significance. My daughter's been reading the book, Man's Search for Meaning. And she's not alone in reading that because thousands of people read that because it's this common struggle. We want to figure out how to make our lives count, how to make our lives matter. And the mistake most people make is they think that they can make their lives count, that they're the reason, they're the source of meaning. So if they make lots of money or they become powerful or they become famous or get this incredible education or make their mark on the world, that's going to give them significance. But death robs us of all that. Because no matter what you do in the end, if you die and there's nothing bigger than that, you'll be forgotten. The way you get meaning in your life is not by creating it yourself, but by tying yourself to something bigger, some grander story, to God's story. I often think life is like a chess game. You know, there's all kinds of pieces on the board. There's knights and there's bishops and there's rooks and there's queens, but there's only 
two kings. And those two kings are in battle. And I think that's what life is like. Jesus is our king and he's out to defeat the other king, death. And has won. And the only way a peace gets significance is not by moving quickly around the board. The only way a peace gets significance is by moving in a way that either furthers its king's agenda or attacks the other side. Who cares if a pawn moves or a knight moves back and forth unless it's advancing the cause of the king? That's how we get infused life with meaning. By becoming part of the grand story that's being told. And the key thing is, is the resurrection is the pinnacle of that story. Because the resurrection tells us that that story is bigger than this life. That there's something more. That there's a new world coming. Remember in the text, it tells us that Christ is simply the first fruits. Right? Verse 22 I'm sorry, verse 23, but in each turn, Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. First fruits was the first part of the harvest. And that notion that Christ is the first fruits isn't simply that other people will be raised because we all will be raised, but he's also the first fruits of the new creation. There's a time coming when the world will be remade and life becomes bigger than this life. And heaven is lived in this, this realm where the spiritual and the physical come together in this new world and we work and we have relationships and we, we function and it's this, this new dimension of reality. And that's what the resurrection points to. And it's our job as a church to point to that. There was a church in Czechoslovakia that... Uh, lost its building, actually got confiscated by the government. So they needed a place to meet and they started looking around at other buildings. They couldn't find anything. They finally came across a building, but the problem was the building was located in the middle of a cemetery. <laughs> Nobody wanted it. I mean, it was hard to run a business in the middle of a cemetery. You know, you're selling new dresses in amongst the gravestones. It didn't work real well. But for the church, it was great. They changed their name to the church of the resurrection. And it became this great metaphor for the reality of what was going on in life. The church is placed in the middle of a dead and dying world to be a testimony to the fact that there is something more. That resurrection is coming, not only of people, but of the world itself. Someday things will be made new. All evil will be defeated. Death will be no more. The day is coming. I like the Jewish parable about twins in the womb. One of the twins believes that there is something more outside the womb, that there's another world where people stand upright and there are stars in the sky and there are mountains and there are oceans and it's just this amazing place. And the other twin you know, can hardly, hardly stand what that twin is saying, treats it with contempt because he thinks it's just absolutely absurd to believe that there's another world. And then one day the believing twin is taken, you know, out through the birth canal. And there's this great rejoicing by the parents and, and, and that twin discovers he was right. There is another world and it's more amazing than he ever thought. I mean, there's sky and stars and oceans and people do upright, walk upright. It's, it's just this amazing place. 
But the other twins left in the womb, he thinks some great catastrophe has taken place. He sees it as death when in reality it was birth. See, Paul is saying, look, the resurrection tells us there's a story and that that story is bigger than this life. And the last thing we have to understand is that Jesus is the hero and the king of the story. Go back to the verse for a moment. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God, the father, after he has destroyed all dominion and authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. Jesus is the king. And he's reigning now. And it's interesting. He gives us a bit of the understanding of that reign in verse 27 and 28. He says, for he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, under Jesus, it is clear that this does not include God himself who, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the son himself will be made subject. So what Paul is saying, look, do you understand that right now Jesus rules and reigns, not just this world, but everything? Think about that. He rules the universe. Do you have any idea of the extent and the power and the nature of his authority? Take a piece of paper. And if the thickness of this paper represents the distance from the earth to the sun, do you know how many pieces of paper stacked together it would take to go to the next nearest star? It would take a stack over 70 feet high just to the next star. Do you know how many pieces of paper stacked together in a row, how long it would be to represent the distance across our galaxy? 310 miles long. Big place. And our galaxy, just a speck of, the, of dust in the universe. And Jesus rules over it all. And of course, we want to invite him into our life as kind of our personal assistant. He doesn't become part of our story. We become part of his story. And when we acknowledge him as king, we have to throw ourselves down at his feet and say to him, command me. And all life has to rotate around him because he is the resurrected king. So, if there is no resurrection, if it's not a reality, then Christianity is a fiction. But if Christ has been raised, then there is a story bigger than this life and Jesus is its hero and it's king. Do you know what that means? It 
means we can live with hope. You know, I'm getting old. And one of the things I've learned as I'm getting up in years is that life is brutal. And I see its brutality in the lives of people I love. And it's taken its toll. Sometimes I just shake my head because I want to shout, it shouldn't be this way. And the reality is it won't always be this way. The day is coming when Christ comes again and all are resurrected and the world is made new. And in that world, all disease will be cured. All addictions will be taken away. All injustices will be righted. There will be no more disappointment because all our dreams will be fulfilled. There will be no more sadness because all sadness will be turned to joy. And there will be no more death Because death will be swallowed up in victory. And that's hope. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, sometimes life is brutal and in the midst of its brutality we forget the reality of what we believe and the reality of who you are and the reality that you are alive and king. And someday that reality will come to its fullness in this world and in our lives. And it's for that day that we hold hope. Help us, Lord, be people of resurrection. Help us, Lord, be a church of resurrection. Help us live lives filled with incredible hope. We pray in Christ's name, amen.